Hello, and welcome to the Radical History Podcast. Today's episode, The Birth of the PKK, Part 2. So, since we spent much of the last episode with Abdullah Acalan in Ankara and Istanbul, it makes sense to return to Kurdistan to find out what effect the developments of the 1960s and 1970s were having in the mountainous southeast. There had been a lot of changes in the villages and towns of Turkish Kurdistan since the crushing of the revolts of the 20s and 30s. For example, the agricultural mechanisation which had created an internal diaspora of Kurds within Turkey's urban centres, a subject we touched on last week. But there were also continuities. The most important of these were the Agas, essentially local Kurdish tribal chieftains and landlords whose power survived the death of the Ottoman regime, even as their titles were officially abolished by Ataturk's modernisers. Agas and sheikhs had long been powerful figures in Kurdish communities, but their economic power increased in the 19th century when land reforms led to increased social differentiation among Kurdish tribes. Collective and traditional forms of land ownership and usage gave way to what was essentially a system of sharecropping, where the old tribal chieftains became landlords. Some of them moved to the towns, where they maintained their influence and connections with the countryside. British officer Rupert Hay, who travelled extensively in Kurdistan, describes the traditional social relations that still prevailed among rural Kurds in 1921. Quote, The position of the chief varies greatly in different tribes. In the remoter mountains, though granted the most ungrudging obedience, he is distinctly one with the tribesmen, the leading member of a family which has won its headship through military prowess. Lower down, he often belongs to an entirely separate caste and comes from a different stock to the tribesmen. The large tribes are divided into sections and in different tribes we find many sections with the same names. This points to the fact that the sections represent the original owners of the soil, while the present chiefs belong to powerful families who have invaded their domains and seized their lands. This is notably the case in the Dizai, where nearly all the land belongs to one powerful family, against which a few old tribal Agas and headmen still maintain an unequal struggle. Here, the chief is a landlord, and the system that prevails is feudal rather than tribal. In Iraq, where the power and autonomy of traditional Kurdish tribes had never been fully broken. The old elite families continued to wield power and were widely regarded as legitimate spokesmen for the Kurds writ large. The Barzani family, an old family of Sheikh lineage, for example, are still a significant force in the politics of Iraqi Kurdistan. Turkey, however, was a different kettle of fish. The last flourishing of the political power of the Agas came with the revolts of Sheikh Said and others, all of which were crushed. Nevertheless, in spite of the Turkish state's increased role in Kurdistan, successive governments found it convenient to use these traditional Kurdish elites as intermediaries between the state and the village, co-opting them into national power structures and allowing enterprising sheikhs and agas to increase their power through extensive patronage networks. While this undoubtedly yielded benefits for the Agas, it also led to their being seen as collaborators with the Turkish state. While many tribal leaders and their families grew wealthy, conditions on the ground in Kurdistan remained grim for the rural proletariat. McDowell, again whose work I'm heavily relying on, cites the example of one hamlet in Mardin province. Quote, Each family had a few chickens and possibly five or six goats. 
the Aga would visit occasionally to reaffirm his authority and assign work. This consisted mainly of labour on the cotton plantations of the Mesopotamian plain, 200 metres below. All except the very old or very young would descend to the plain daily to work an 11-hour day. For this, the rates of pay were one US dollar for a child, 150 for a woman and $2 for a man. Villagers reckoned they had a 30% mortality rate among the children. This was in 1983. Ochelan himself had emerged from this class of impoverished rural labourers, and so it was no surprise that he had little love for the landowners and elites, Kurdish or otherwise. A significant aspect of the PKK's appeal was their combination of social radicalism and uncompromising Kurdish nationalism, which appealed to poor Kurds, who were often dissatisfied with the inequality within their own communities. Another development within Kurdistan was the return of Kurdish nationalism. Though the reawakening of Kurdish identity and organisation had begun in the cities among the diaspora, it quickly spread to the heartland. Kurds were increasingly the victims of violence, perpetrated both by the army and hardline Turkish nationalists. The most dramatic example of this was the Maras massacre, which saw hundreds of Kurds, mostly Alevis, killed and thousands injured in what was essentially a pogrom. Additionally, the army stepped up its presence in the southeast, placing entire provinces under martial law where the population were subjected to humiliation, harassment, rape and extrajudicial murder at the hands of the soldiers. In the late 1970s, several armed radical groups began to operate in Kurdistan. Ocalan and his followers were just one of these, now known as Apocular, or Followers of Apo, Ocalan's nickname. Apo and his friends mainly focused on recruitment at the beginning, building up membership in the home districts of the founding members. In doing so, they were competing with other groups, all of whom were attempting to launch an armed socialist revolution in Kurdistan. The differences between these organisations seem opaque and convoluted, divided among Maoists, Hosists and other often strange sub-ideologies. Ocalan and his followers mainly distinguished themselves from these competitors by their zeal, confidence and commitment, particularly that of Ocalan, around whom there was already a nascent cult of personality. One recruit who joined Apo in 1978, cited by Elisa Marcus, recalls that, quote, The PKK understood well the psychology of the people. They understood that the people are weak, so they need guns. The other groups kept seeing these things as something in the future. Then their approach was that you first, you think, argue and develop a consciousness and then organize. But in that period in Turkey, you needed to be armed to accomplish anything. By 1978, the group had gathered together a couple of hundred recruits and formally launched itself as the Kurdistan Workers' Party. At this early stage, the PKK's primary targets were the far-right and rival leftist organisations. The PKK were uncompromising against all of these targets and spent much of the late 70s subduing their competitors in Kurdistan, often through violence. Ocalan's absolute confidence in himself and his organisation as the only force capable of leading the revolution meant that there was no room for rivals. A significant aspect of the PKK programme was their opposition to the Kurdish landowning elites. An opportunity to put this opposition into real practice came in May 1978 when a PKK militant by the name of Halil Kavgun 
was killed in the town of Hilvan by a member of the Suleymanlar landowning tribe. This put the PKK in an awkward position. One of their activists had been killed, and not to retaliate would be taken as a sign of weakness. Until now, they had been mainly fighting their rivals on the left. This was their chance to prove that they were really serious about social and political revolution in Kurdistan. Unfortunately for Ocalan, the local villagers were unwilling to support a revenge attack. The Suleymanlar may have been resented, but they were feared more than they were hated. However, Ocalan and his comrades felt they had no other choice but to seek retribution. Two months later, PKK fighters killed the tribe's leader, Mehmet Baisal, sparking low-intensity warfare in Hilvan, which lasted for several months. Despite the initial fears of locals, the fact that the PKK remained in the town and continued to fight, despite heavy resistance from the Suleymanlar, endeared them to the locals and their support increased significantly in the area. Ramazan Ulek was a young Kurd from a village near Hilvan. He explained to Eliza Marcus the situation in the wake of the fighting there. Quote, After years of oppression, suddenly there was a group to stand against that, and it was like we could finally take revenge. In my village, for example, everyone had a relative who had been beaten by the soldiers, and the PKK was a stand against that. The PKK was also against the Agas, who would steal everything, even gold off a woman's neck. After years of being repressed, suddenly there was something, and everyone ran to the PKK. End quote. Apo and the PKK had stumbled onto a winning strategy. Taking on the Agas drastically benefited their reputation and recruitment in Kurdistan. The year after the fighting in Hilvan, the Apokular decided to up the stakes even further by targeting Mehmet Celal Buchak, a member of parliament for the Justice Party and the leader of the Buchak tribe, for assassination. Buchak was widely despised and known for ruling over his holdings through fear and terror. He was also a figure of national prominence and was central to the Justice Party patronage network in Kurdistan. Killing him would be a coup for the fledgling PKK. The assassination was a failure, but the ensuing feud with the Buchak clan and the fact that the PKK continued to fight despite heavy losses again increased the organisation's support and popularity, as locals believed that they were serious and would stay even when the going got tough. The Turkish military coup of 1980 meant stiffer resistance for the organisation, as nearly 1,800 PKK members were swept up in an army dragnet. The number of activists arrested, and the fact that this still wasn't enough to break the back of the organisation, shows how successful their recruitment efforts over the preceding years had been. Key leaders of the PKK were arrested, but enough of the party leadership, including Ocalan, were able to escape into Syria with the blessing of President Hafez el-Assad that the group was not completely decapitated. In the face of the military clampdown in Turkey, the PKK laid low and attempted to build up bases beyond the reach of the Turkish military. Some of these were established in Syria and Lebanon, but the most desirable area for such safe zones was Kurdish northern Iraq, where crossing the border was comparatively easy. Much of the Iraqi side of the Turkey-Iraq border was controlled at the time by the Kurdish Democratic Party. The KDP were a much more conservative outfit than the PKK. Indeed, the Barzani family who led the organisation since its inception were exactly the traditional Kurdish elites that Ocalan had previously railed against. 
Nevertheless, with their backs to the wall, the PKK could not afford to be ideologically choosy. Accordingly, they began to moderate their previously sectarian attitude towards other Kurdish nationalists. Over in Iraq, whatever hesitation the Barzani clan may have had about working with the PKK faded when a Turkish military offensive against the border region in 1983 killed more Kurds on the Iraqi side of the border than it did the Kurdish, and they allowed the PKK to establish bases in the territory they controlled. While the PKK was now operating mainly from the borders of Syria, Iraq and Iran, it didn't intend to abandon Turkish Kurdistan to the Turkish army. Between 1982 and 1984, teams of PKK scouts were sent into Turkey to gather information, avoiding armed confrontation with the army patrols who struggled to maintain surveillance over the sparsely populated and mountainous terrain of Kurdistan. The locals they conversed with had mixed feelings about the armed struggle. On the one hand, they were angered by the repression that had followed the 1980 coup, but they also felt a sense of helplessness. Sari Baran, one of the PKK scouts who infiltrated Turkey in 1983, informed sympathetic locals that, quote, the guerrillas have left, but they will return and will start the struggle. His promise was sincere. Ochlan, now in exile in Damascus, organised a meeting in early 1984, at which it was decided to go on the offensive. On the 15th of August that year, 30 PKK commandos infiltrated the town of Era near the Iraqi border. One team surrounded the army barracks, while another opened fire, killing one soldier and keeping the rest of the garrison pinned down. Meanwhile, others captured the town mosque, using its loudspeakers to announce their presence. The guerrillas then casually strolled down the main street of the town, handing out leaflets and explaining to surprised locals on the street front coffee shops that they had just witnessed the opening battle of a national liberation war. It quickly became clear that there was no short-term chance of a counter-attack from the army, and so the presumably jubilant commandos captured a large cache of weapons from a military installation, hijacked a water truck and disappeared into the mountains. Two hours later, another PKK unit consisting of 18 soldiers entered the town of Semdinli. Eight of the militants surrounded the barracks, while the rest went to the main square and announced the beginning of the National Liberation War before leaving the town and visiting smaller villages to publicise the spectacular attacks. The attacks on Eru and Semdinli had been wildly successful. In the wake of the 1980 clampdown, it had appeared that the PKK were on the run. The attacks were a significant publicity victory for the insurgents and an embarrassment for the civilian administration that had come to power in Turkey in 1983. As Marcus notes, quote, The Kurds of the southeast knew about Kurdish wars in Turkey and in neighbouring Iran and Iraq, and they knew these uprisings had always failed. To counter this, PKK militants knew they had to project a show of strength, courage and readiness to maintain a long battle against the Turkish army. End quote. In October of that year, the insurgents got another chance to demonstrate their strength, courage and readiness when the authoritarian president and former general Kenan Evren came to Kurdistan in a show of strength. The PKK killed three of his guards and a few days later killed eight more soldiers in an ambush near the Iraqi border. It was an embarrassment for Evren and another propaganda coup for the PKK. However, 
Ochelan and the rest of the PKK leadership were not naive enough to think that a handful of spectacular ambushes would be sufficient to break the power of the Turkish state in Kurdistan. The war, they knew, was to be a long one, and the real core of it was to be a low-intensity strategy focused in Kurdistan itself. The approach, as described by McDowell, was predicated on avoiding direct confrontation with the army while demonstrating the Turkish state's inability to protect its supporters and collaborators in Kurdistan itself, undermining its power and legitimacy at the local level. Essentially, this meant a return to the killing of Agas and landlords that had boosted the PKK several years before. The Long War was to live up to its name. Since the spectacular attacks of 1984, which marked the real beginning of the PKK insurgency, fighting has continued between armed Kurds and the Turkish government, marked by changes in strategy, attempts at peace, ceasefires and returns to violence. Support for the PKK has waxed and waned. The Kurdish minority in Turkey has never spoken with one voice, and there were, and are, very real divisions in Turkish Kurdistan itself. Successive governments in Turkey have also moved from one strategy to another, sometimes making concessions to Kurdish demands, sometimes taking a hard line, depending on the balance of power in Ankara. At the time of broadcast, the conflict in Turkish Kurdistan is still ongoing, 34 years after the attacks on Eru and Semdinli, and 40 years after formal launch of the PKK. For now, we won't be going any further in the story of this conflict, though I hope to return to Kurdish history, including the post-1984 history of the PKK-Turkish conflict in future podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow us on Twitter, at History Radical, and leave us a five-star review and subscribe on iTunes. Also, if you were intrigued by the daring assassinations carried out by the PKK militants in the late 1970s, you might just be interested in the Assassinations podcast, a fascinating show which deals with a variety of assassinations throughout history. Check them out at assassinationspodcast.com. Thanks for listening.